Hey everyone, it's Whitney Arana, and this is PS Editor's Podcast. I have a new co-host today, my fellow associate editor, Greg Bruno. Hi Whitney, thanks uh, for having me, very excited to be here. Today we're going to discuss China's role in Africa. Um, and it's a perfect day to have Greg here with me, as he has quite a bit of experience engaging with this topic, don't you Greg? I do. Um... I've been looking at China's foreign policy from a broader perspective as a graduate student and a journalist and an author for a number of years. And what's interesting to me is that China's intentions don't always seem clear to the outside world. And sometimes they don't necessarily always seem clear or are perfectly communicated inside China itself. So some people describe China as what's been called a fragmented authoritarian state which essentially means that top-level policies are not always communicated uh, or directly delivered to lower-level uh, bodies or governments. There's a high degree of interpretation that's, that's allowed and permitted, and it's simply how, how China functions. What that means for those of us looking uh, at the situation inside China uh, is that it's really important to speak with those who work in the country, inside China, and understand its policies from a more intimate perspective to help us gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of what China is doing overseas. And I think uh, very excited to speak with our guest today. Yeah, and the guest Greg is referring to is Hannah Ryder. She's the founder and CEO of Development Reimagined. She's also a former head of policy and partnerships for UNDP in China. Um, and she recently wrote an article for us that focuses on China's role in Africa, its engagement, its investment, um, and trade, all of that. So let's give Hannah a call and let her help us unpack some of these questions. Niha from Beijing. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Uh, it's Whitney, and I'm here with Greg, uh, PS Associate Editor. Hi, Hannah. Nihao, Nihama. It's great to, great to be in touch. It's nice to have you, and thanks so much for joining us today on this PS Editor's podcast. So how is the, uh, how's the weather in Beijing? I understand it's quite hot and uh, perhaps a little bit unpleasant. Yes, Beijing is one of those places that uh, it's quite overcast today, but very warm. Um, it's one of those places which gets extremely hot um, as well as extremely cold. So in winter, we go down to temperatures of minus 10, but right now we're dealing with uh, around 35, that's Celsius. Um, so yeah, it's, a uh, sounds lovely. <laughs> and that, that's the weather I enjoy the hot weather, but, uh, you know, it's still, a... it, it's still uncomfortable for some. And so how long have you been in Beijing? Uh, so far three years. Um, I'm coming up to my three year anniversary quite soon, actually. Um, I came here first with the United Nations development program, um, to help them to scale up their work, uh, supporting China to have better relationships with developing countries. Um, I'd always been interested in, in coming to China, actually. Um, I'm not sure if you've mentioned it already, but uh, I was born in Kenya and I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And going there from the UK every so often, I would always notice the differences that uh, this new actor is having on the country. And uh, that made me feel that it was quite important to interact and understand what's happening here. So when I knew about the UNDP job and, uh, and found out about it, I uh, went for it and got it. And, uh, and I was quite excited to, to do that. 
Uh, but for the last year I've been on, I've actually been on maternity leave. Um, and I'm now, I've just founded a new company here, a, a consulting, international development consulting firm here, uh, because I realized there was a big gap uh, in even what the UN was able to do in terms of supporting Chinese stakeholders and um, stakeholders from other developing countries to interact with China. Um, and that's where uh, I've focused this consultancy. Okay, yeah. And that's a little bit um, what you cover in your PS article that we that we mentioned uh, in the intro. Um, you know, as you mentioned your experience in Africa and sort of watching the, the changes that have been occurring um, in recent years owing to China's increasing engagement with the continent. Um, uh, as you mentioned in your piece, uh, China has been accused uh, by many of acting something like a colonial or imperial power, um, which is a label that you disagree with very um, vehemently. Um, so maybe uh, we can start by just giving readers a little idea of why you think that's inappropriate or kind of characterizing the Chinese relationship with the continent um, in a more accurate way. Yes, of course. Um, well, you know, this the, the article that I wrote for Project Syndicate, you know, um, I usually write articles and um, um, everything I write, blog posts to articles, usually come out of having several conversations with several people um, all about the same topic. And so it makes me, I usually realize, actually, I'm quite passionate about this topic if I keep having having a discussion about it. And this one, you know, I, I, I've been increasingly you know, reading so many different articles, which, whether directly or indirectly, really try to focus China, focus on China as some kind of colonizer. And I felt that I had to write this article because there, what bothers me about those articles is that fundamentally they diminish uh, what colonialism is and what colonialism was, um, which was, you know, a very, very, uh, a real process really deep into the society. Um, it, they're associated with colonialism. There were curfews. There were, you know, people were imprisoned, um, raped, uh, you know, a whole range of, a whole range of difficulties. I mean, even, to the degree that you know, you have people like Franz Fanon who have talked about the the effects of colonialism, even just on the way that people think. You know, it was it was very very deep. And in my opinion, um, and from what I see on the continent in Africa, um, I, I really don't feel that that is the kind of picture that that uh, that China has. Um, well, that is not that is not the reality of China's engagement. You know, China is not uh, taking prisoners, in, imposing curfews in different places, and so on. Um, of course, there are elements of, self, of of soft power, and I think we can discuss some of those a bit later. And of course, there is a very important economic and investment relationship, or in, increasing investment relationship, shall we say, because there's actually been very little with China so far. Um, but uh, you know the the overall narrative of colonialism uh, 
was certainly I felt extremely inappropriate and I was really glad to, to have the platform of uh, Project Syndicate to be able to to share that uh, share that opinion and I've got a lot of great feedback um, from it uh, since actually so uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting um, to look at it from a perspective of labels and what others kind of outside of China think of, of Chinese activities in Africa and other developing countries uh, around the world including in Latin America but I'm, I'm quite interested in China's own view of its own victimization uh, and something that, that didn't make it into your piece. But I'm sure uh, just being in China, you're, you're certainly quite aware of and, and is a conversation that, that, uh, you, that you probably have frequently, this idea of humiliation at the hands of, of Japanese imperialists um, uh, and Western imperialists really forms the Chinese narrative. And I wonder... If, if some of the opposition to that term is, a, is, is simply a recognition of China's own history uh, and what it actually means to be colonized. Yes, well, I think that, that narrative of the Chinese understanding of what it means to be colonized, um, or at least certain parts of China anyway, um, the, the understanding is used particularly by the Chinese government uh, as a narrative which is helpful in terms of creating some kind of brotherhood um, or, you know, uh, sisterhood, uh, so if, we, if we're trying to be uh, all-inclusive, uh, with, with African countries in particular. You know, and that goes right back to um, the Bandung Conference in 1955, um, where a number of Asian and African countries, the non-colonized countries at the time, that, so that wasn't that many, um, where they got together and uh, came up with a number of principles about their engagement and their um, how they wanted to take forward uh, how they their view of international relations, as it were. Um, and so that you know, that narrative and those sort of principles have continued until now. And you really see, you know, even in uh, you know modern day. Uh, structures, government-to-government structures like the Forum on China-Africa Corporation, which has been in place since 2000, and now um, the last meeting was in 2015, and, and the next one is uh, next year. Um, you see that kind of narrative being used a lot by China with regards to Africa, and kind of almost trying to say, well, we are engaging differently with Africa. We are not engaging as colonizers. Um, so of course, you know, one might say, "Oh well, Hannah, why are you know, are you just, are you just being the voice of the of the Chinese government, right? You know, um, and and you know, I, I want to differentiate myself from that because what I wanted to point out in the article and you know, in all my work really is that engaging with China is not simple. You know, China, those of us who've lived here know that the government business. You know, people on the street are very different. Um, and, you know, when you have uh, engagement with Chinese actors as a government, um, I don't know, if, again, you know, I've, I've been a civil servant uh, for a long time before I, I moved to the Un United Nations Development Program. I was a civil servant in the UK. Um, you know, and so we would constantly have to engage with a number of different uh, stakeholders you know, engaging with China is engaging with a number of different stakeholders and you need to be able to manage that. Uh, my view is governments in Africa and elsewhere need to manage manage the Chinese stakeholders very actively, um, perhaps more so than, than actors from other countries 
possibly just because of the number and uh, and and different different types of and the cultural differences perhaps um, it's it's really worth them doing that um and then exactly what you were discussing in your ps piece and and what you've just kind of pointed us toward now is um this idea that from the perspective of someone who is engaging with china you have so much to consider um as you mentioned china you know, of course, has a lot to offer Africa. It's got a lot of money. It can um, create jobs, which in your piece you mentioned the amount of local jobs or local people who are getting jobs through these Chinese investments is increasing and is particularly high in areas where, you know, the country is, is has more organized structures to, to protect labor, et cetera. Um, but then, of course, there are questions about, you know, there, there are serious risks of engaging with China because it, there, there can be these power imbalances. And there are also questions about the development model that, that China is supporting, that the types of investments, to what extent they are actually advancing uh, development goals or poverty reduction, um, to what extent China is actually considering those impacts when it makes its investment decisions and like, I guess, how much authority the the negotiators, the African governments, for example, have in ensuring that those investments serve those those goals. Right. I mean, just to, to follow up on that, you know, kind of quickly, the idea that um, that 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 what China is doing or how China is engaging, forget the label for a moment, um, you know, but one of the things that, that, that you read a lot about is what Africa needs is XXX. Um, one of the ways that, that China in its own history um, was able to get out of some of the trappings of poverty was to focus on agriculture um, and really shore up uh, its agricultural sector. And I'm just wondering if what we're seeing in, in, in terms of Chinese investment in Africa is going in, in the direction of what Africa needs or what makes kind of good financial sense from, from China's perspective. Yes. So this is exactly the point of, of what I feel that uh, governments need to taking very seriously. They really need to start to plan how they engage with China because, or the Chinese actors, because there is exactly this risk um, that what their own aspirations for development are may not necessarily match with what uh, China, from its own domestic perspective, wants to advance. And I don't mean this in terms of debt. Let's come to the debt question later, because again, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of blurriness around this and and a lot of hyperbole. Um, with the with the with the development model and the development plans, you know, Chinese the Chinese government has an overall Africa policy. Um, you can get doc, you can find the documents on the website about what its overall Africa policy is, um, but it's not detailed and, and there's not a particular. There are there there are suggestions that there are country strategies um, from the in the foreign aid department and so on, but even they're they're not very detailed. Um, so what China will tend to do, especially at the government level, will, you know, be, look, we can offer you this, we can offer you that, you know, okay, do you want it or do you not, you know? 
And my view is that African governments in particular, and perhaps in comparison to, let's say, uh, Latin American and the Caribbean, African governments are actually in a very special position. Um, despite what it seems, you know, that they really need China and they need, you know, they need a lot of investment. Absolutely. They need a lot of uh, new jobs. But with regards to China, you know, China really needs to export its manufacturing capability in terms in, in the way that it needs to change its own, uh, its own uh, domestic economy. It's moving to a service-based economy. It's moving to a consumption-based economy. And it needs those, uh, needs those goods that it's going to consume to be, to still be cheap and uh, to be, you know, easily accessible, et cetera. So, you know, this is one of the key reasons, economic reasons behind the Belt and Road Initiative, stretching all the way to Africa, certainly, because uh, the African continent, you know, the provides a real great source of cheap labor and uh, industrial potential for industrialization. And so that's where the overlap is. That's where the overlap between China's China's idea and uh, African government's idea is. But you still need to go even in, in, into even more debt depth than that, because the model of industrialization could be a really dirty model of industrialization, you know. Um, so even that, where the, where, the, where the overlap is really clear between the interests, um, African governments even still need to be very careful with that because they do need to still make sure that they get the amount of jobs that they want, that China isn't just bringing its own uh, labor, you know, who are subject to different labor rules um, into the country, that they're employing local labor and that also they're using local uh local goods, that they're also um, uh, making sure that the, that, the, that the power that's provided is clean power, hydro or wind power, as opposed to new coal-fired plants, these sorts of things, these need to be actively managed. So by are the you, I mean, are you suggesting then that the countries on the receiving end of Chinese development uh, work more in concert with each other to ensure that, that, the, print, that the policies and, and that the conditions in which Chinese investment is being offered uh, is mutually beneficial to manage not only you know, development expectations, but potential political pressure um, that some of these, uh, these development offerings bring in the case of, for example, you know, Taiwan, policy towards Taiwan, or, or some of the Chinese, the, the core issues that we hear so much about. So is, is, the, is the suggestion then from you that, um, that it's not unilateral agreements so much, but more kind of collective African agreements? I think it has to be a mix between the two. Um, but where I do think the collective uh, collective uh, agreements or collective discussion can be really helpful is in sharing experience. So, for example, you know, there's the East African community. This is where I know best, right? But I also, you know, have have a good understanding of the rest of the continent. But um, take a country like Ethiopia. Ethiopia actually. Uh, had this special mechanism that it would agree with China. We have a we have a five year schedule for every single investment or every single big contract that the Chinese companies are taking forwards. We will agree a schedule of how many uh, Chinese laborers versus Ethiopian laborers you'll have, and that will diminish every the Ethiopian to the Ethiopian to Chinese uh, ratio will will change um, every every year. That's quite a special. Um, 
special type of agreement that Ethiopia had. But it may be, it could have been very helpful uh, for Kenya to use that when it was, let's say, negotiating the standard gauge railway uh, contract um, at the beginning, because Kenya actually had to eventually renegotiate that because uh, Kenya and China had to renegotiate that because there were some uh, strikes from uh, and and uh, and uh, protests because of the low amount of domestic labor that was that was proposed to be used initially. Um, so I think exchanging of experience across the African continent will be very useful. That said, I'm not sure there are many institutions that are up to the task. Um, the African Union has got a really special role. Um, it actually has a very special role even in the Forum on China-Africa Corporation. It's the only uh, uh, plurilateral organization which is uh, allowed to formally be part of Forum on China-Africa Corporation. The rest all other international organizations are just observers. Um, so it's really got a special role and they've actually, the African Union has been invited to set up a representative office here in Beijing um, for several years now. Um, but they still haven't, while on the other side, China has set up a representative office in Addis Ababa um, at the African Union headquarters, a special one specifically for the African Union um, with, you know, well over 20 members of staff. So, you know, China has, has really got its act together, whereas Africa just, it's just not, just not making it happen as yet. So, you know, there's, there's a good long way to go, but, you know, I just, I wish it would happen really quickly uh, because, you know, we are, I think, you know, I, I worked on the Stone Review of the Economics of Climate Change back in 2006. And, you know, then the argument was about, look, we're locking ourselves into a whole range of uh, choices that we can't turn back. I feel that right now there is an issue around um, possible choices that um, African governments won't easily be able to turn back. This is the moment of opportunity to seize with China. If, if China, you know, as you say, it's it's not a colonizer, it has a totally different kind of relationship with Africa, or it's pursuing a different kind of relationship with Africa, um, you know, and, and it depends, I suppose, on, on how African governments handle it. Um, what type of relationship or, you know, if you had to label this, this dynamic or China's role in Africa, um, what would you call it? Uh, I would, I would call it a partner. Um, and you know the part, partner is the is the is the term that's used actually for most of the traditional um, uh, OECD donors, some of whom were previous colonizers. Um, that is the term that people use now, um, and I think China needs to go into that bracket too. It needs to be actively managed, and uh, but but seen as a as a potential contributor to development and contributor to poverty reduction on the continent. Um, but actively managed. Great. Well, um, you know, clearly for China and for recipients of uh, Chinese development, labels do matter. Um, so it's uh, been fantastic to hear your views on why the uh, the mainstream media, I suppose, has uh, been employing the wrong one uh, and how we can better understand it. Um, so uh, thank you so much, uh, Hannah, for joining us. Tsiatiani. Tsiatiani. We hope to hear from you again soon. Yes, I look forward to contributing again soon. Thank you so much. It was great.
So I think Hannah did a great job of highlighting the complexity of engagement with China and sort of the the challenge that's ahead for African leaders as they attempt to kind of navigate this relationship and you know make the most of of China's engagement while also protecting themselves and advancing their own interests. But of course, we didn't have time to get into all of the many relevant factors because you know she 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 kind of went into the economic interests, China trying to export manufacturing, et cetera. Um, but uh, as you mentioned previously in our discussion, there's there's a lot more to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, she did a good job of, of pointing out the complexities in, in terms of how many multiple actors there are. Uh, going back to what I said previously about this fragmented authoritarianism model, when you're engaging with China, uh, it's often difficult to know exactly who you're engaging with and what element and what arm of, of the government. And so for African countries to unify uh, both collectively uh, in, in their, their overarching continental strategies, but also as individual countries, can be difficult to, to understand exactly uh, which arm of, of the country you're, you're working with. Um, you know, but there's other questions about how China is engaging in the, develop, in the developing world and in Africa and elsewhere. Um, you know, China's been criticized for supplying non loans with, with no strings attached, non-conditional loans, which means China's money goes to just about any any country, uh, and that includes countries with pretty poor humanitarian records. Yeah, or the strings that are attached might relate to some kind of political interest or support for China's China's own geopolitical interests rather than concern about domestic human rights or labor rights or something like that. Absolutely. China's core interests, you know, that include uh, South China Sea, the Taiwan issue, Tibet. These are issues that, that China uses its, its purse, it uses its economic power to push countries to move in a certain political direction. Uh, and we've seen that recently with uh, Sao Tome and Principi uh, choosing to recognize China and, and moving away from Taiwan. It was one of the last countries that still recognized the government of Taiwan. Uh, and not long after that announcement was made, new development projects came into play. Mm -hmm. So China definitely uses its, its uh, economic diplomacy uh, to pursue its own political interests. Mm -hmm. And that is something that can be difficult for countries in Africa and around the world to push back against. Yeah, especially if they do manage, as Hannah mentioned, to secure a deal that does actually advance poverty reduction or their economic interests then you've got this kind of outside pressure that might not even be directly mentioned in a deal, but kind of forms and then it becomes even more difficult to resist it. Correct. So the question might not necessarily be labels, but intent. And I think that is one of the big questions that, that, uh, that we will all have to face going forward as China exerts itself economically around the world. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today on PS Editor's podcast. And um, that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Whitney Arana. And I'm Greg Bruno. Talk to you soon. <laughs>